Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of the greatest and most surprising power move in drag racing history. It's the tale of Wally Park seizing control of drag racing in 1958 and never looking back. It's unbelievable, it's wild, and it's something you've probably never, ever heard about. This is the story of how the NHRA became and has forever stayed the preeminent sanctioning body in drag racing. Welcome to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast, and this is one that I am unofficially calling The Fish That Ate the Whale, because it is the story of the NHRA in the late 1950s, an NHRA that was about to be overshadowed by another drag racing organization, and an NHRA that pulled off one of the great coups in the sport of drag racing to establish itself as the preeminent sanctioning body in the sport, a position that it has never relinquished since 1958 and shows no signs of relinquishing today. So how does the fish eat the whale? That is going to be the story. Who is the fish? Who is the whale? Who are the characters involved? There are a lot of them, and there's a lot of research that's gone into this particular podcast to get the details correct and really get you into the nitty-gritty of the formation of drag racing, the advancement of drag racing, and how this really basic club-type activity ended up becoming one of the nation's largest motorsports. Our story will concentrate between the years of 1951 in 1958 with a slight postscript into 1960. The reason is the NHRA was founded in 1951. That's really when the story begins and by the time we get to 1958 you'll know why that is the climax of the entire story we're going to be telling here today. You're going to hear my voice on this podcast, of course, and you're also going to hear the voice of Brett Kepner intermittently. Brett Kepner is a drag racing historian and someone who is intimately familiar with the details of drag racing in its earliest days. And we talk about its earliest days. We're going to talk about those days in the 1950s when it became a more organized activity. So to get things kicked off, we really have to set the stage for you as to what drag racing looked like in 1951 when Wally Parks founded the NHRA. There was really no such thing as drag racing as we know it today. It was a sport being held on some racetracks. Santa Ana, California, famously the first kind of paid drag strip opened in 1950 where you'd pay a nickel or whatever at the gate, go in and watch or pay your quarter or your buck to go in and race your car. In 1951, when Wally Park started NHRA, the idea wasn't necessarily to get into the drag racing business, but it was to unite car clubs across the country and basically to create an an overriding organization to take these very small car clubs and turn them into a national kind of force. Of course, we all know Wally was very interested in converting the idea of hot rodding from an outlaw activity that was frowned upon by society and by people and turning it into an organized uh, positive activity, which he knew that it was. The bad apples were spoiling the bunch, basically, when it comes to hot rodding. And Wally was working on a way to create um, a new image for what hot rodding was, for the passion of hot rodders, and for their skill and acumen as mechanics and people that had learned uh, trades, if you will, in the service, and came back to uh, employ those, those trades and those skills in the real world when they moved back after the war. It all starts in California, of course, at least this part of our story. So from 1951 to around 1953, the NHRA was kind of the, the, the big Kid on the block. Uh, they were growing in membership. Of course, Robert E. Peterson and Hot Rod Magazine, Wally Parks, uh, was one of his best friends, was the editor of Hot Rod Magazine. He was able to use Hot Rod and its big circulation to help grow the NHRA. But they were not without competition. Some other organizations began to spring up, especially as drag racing got more popular and as hot rodding got more popular. One of those organizations was called the ATAA. 
This was the Automobile Timing Association of America. This was not a hot rodding club. This was a drag racing organization that began in 1953. So, like all things, it starts small. There's a guy named Jim Lamona that's in charge of the ATAA. Jim Lamona manages to get some financial backing from a guy named Arnold Miramont, who will become a central figure in this story. Arnold Miramont is the CEO, the operator of Miramont Automotive Products. He is, for lack of a better term, an industrialist. He is an incredibly wealthy man. He is an art collector, and he is someone that is acutely aware of the marketplace that Hot Rodding presents his company, which primarily makes exhaust products. All these kids with hot rods want to put exhaust systems on and make more power and make their cars sound good. He wants to get a part of that, and he finds a small investment in the ATAA as a way to do that. So before we continue on with that end of the story, let's figure out kind of drag racing as it sat in 1953. Wally Parks has had his first sanctioned race. He sanctions a race in 1953 at Pomona, California. It's the first NHRA race, not a national event was the Southern California Championships, but it was his first actual NHRA event. And it came after a lot of work. Of course, it came after uh, Wally worked very hard with you know police departments and the California Highway Patrol, local police, to work on this image of hot rodders as bad people and as a social menace, as opposed to what they were, which are kids that just want to go out there and have some fun. So we go to Speed Age Magazine, February 1953, quoting from a story called California Shook Hands with Hot Rods. And what this story talks about is the fact that rather than chase the kids off the streets and throw them in jail, finally, um, things have changed. The attitude in California has changed and the approach has changed for the better. So we quote from this story. The quest for speed on wheels in California is more than just a sport. It's an industry. There are at least 100,000 organized hot rodders, thousands more unaffiliated in the state. There are 65,000 motorcycles. Dozens of dealer garages and machine shops specialize in accessories and work to increase the speed or alter the appearance of standard factory model automobiles and motorcycles. Since the chief product of this industry is speed, there is a basic conflict with the public which demands in the interest of safety that speed be regulated. Because many enthusiasts were using the streets and highways, law enforcement agencies were faced with a problem. Much of the responsibility fell on the California Highway Patrol, which has jurisdiction in the unincorporated areas of the state, for rural highways became popular scenes for speed contests. Two highway patrol officers, expert motorcyclists with wide acquaintances among cycle and hot rod supporters, were called in to do a special job and given free reign. They decided to try the handshake instead of the citation to work with the hot rodders. The program proved to be a marked success with the cyclists. Club members liked the meeting with law enforcement on a friend-to-friend basis and talking over the technical points of the vehicle code. They enjoyed being singled out as a group worth cooperating with rather than as enemies to be pursued relentlessly. More importantly, accidents involving motorcycles took a decided drop. Late in 1948, it became obvious that hot rods with their more universal appeal would outnumber the cycles, alarming motorists and citizens, and they would be involved in more accidents and law violations. Consequently, the patrol extended its operations and applied the same cooperative procedure that has been successful with the cycle enthusiasts. Today, the officers meet monthly with the clubs, show safety and sports motion pictures, discuss safety and mechanical regulations of the vehicle code, and answer questions and check members' vehicles for compliance with the law. Finally, merely meeting with the clubs, however, did not solve the basic question of where legal and safe racing was to be done. That answer has been the drag strip, an off-the-highway location where speeders can test their ingenuity, imagination, workmanship, 
and under proper supervision, speed to their heart's delight in comparative safety. These drag strips, usually abandoned or little-used airfields, are not sponsored by the patrol, but are suggested to local officials and to other interested parties in an outlet for the competitive spirit, which might otherwise spill in blood on the highways. Actual operation of the strips is left to the community or to private enterprise. That was the first big success story in hot rodding, and it set the stage for taking this activity that was a social menace and turning it into something very positive. Over the course of the next couple of years, drag racing would evolve in ways that no one really saw coming, and it would do so in a positive way, driven by the NHRA in the West and the quickly growing ATAA in the Chicagoland area. And I guess it's now time to talk a little bit about the ATAA before we get too far ahead of ourselves. So we moved to 1954, and a couple very important things happen. Wally Park starts to understand what could be the potential of drag racing. He sees how popular it is, and he sees how enthusiastic young guys and girls are to come to these events that he's organizing. They are small, but he notices the amount of tracks that are popping up in Southern California, starts to understand and, and build programs to help other people uh, start racing across the country. And the way he does this at first is with the NHRA Safety Safari. He sends out the members of the Safety Safari in 1954, and they go on this this nomadic trip across America, meeting with car clubs, meeting with local timing associations, and teaching them how to properly work with their local government, how to operate a drag strip, how to do things safely, how to tech cars. He is giving them all the tools to go drag racing and all the tools to use in order to be successful at it. He is also mounting what is basically a traveling sales campaign and he's doing that by these guys that are out there kind of uh, his apostles, if you will. He's out there. They're out there kind of evangelizing for him and evangelizing for the NHRA, telling the story about how the NHRA is, uh, you know, helping them out, why they should belong to the NHRA, why their club should join the NHRA, why other hot rod associations uh, might not be so uh, as 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 forward thinking, as forward acting. And hey, listen, we're out here helping you. You should be members of our organization. It was a big deal. The ATAA, on the other hand, was doing things slightly differently. Back in 1953, there was a drag strip operated uh, north of Chicago in a place called Half Day, Illinois, and it was operated by the Granatelli brothers. Yes, Andy Granatelli and his family operated this racetrack. So they begin the track in 53. They get hooked up with Merrimont, a man whose name, again, will be very, very prominent in this story, and the racetrack is sponsored, and it is the first naming rights drag strip or racing facility in the in the country, maybe even in the world. It was called Merrimont Speedway, and every week Merrimont Speedway would open up, and they would have their races, and the races would draw a couple hundred cars. It would draw they would draw thousands of people, and um, these would these were very successful. So Half Day Illinois um, is a great incubator for the ATAA, and it's a great it's a great visual for both Jim Lamona, who wants to promote the ATAA, and Arthur Merrimont, or Arnold Merrimont, who wants to make money off the ATAA and sell his products to understand if this works here in this little place, imagine how much it will work across the country. The big thing that ATAA had going for it that the NHRA did not is the savvy of Arnold Merrimont and his marketing department. Remember, Merrimont Automotive is a massive company. It is a hundreds of millions of dollars of business company in the 1950s. And eventually, Merrimont's business acumen will take this thing into being a publicly traded company. 
but for 1954 purposes, we have the NHRA, which is the older of the two organizations by a couple of years with their safety safari going around the country, shaking hands and kissing babies, kind of making fans and making um, NHRA members literally one car club at a time. And then we have the ATA approach, a much more, how should we say, modern, large-scale look. And the ATAA rises to immediate prominence in 1954 when Arnold Merrimont pens a story that gets sent out and picked up by basically every single newspaper in the United States. At this time, the preeminent way to get information out to anybody was through the newspaper, and Merrimont scored a massive coup, as did the ATAA, when a story called Hot Rod Project Stresses Safety was picked up and run across the nation mostly on the front page of newspapers. And the story reads as follows. The Automobile Timing Association of America is organizing the nation's hot rods in a move to rid the highway of the menace known as, quote-unquote, shot rods. The ATAA is a nonprofit organization which came into being in 1953 to operate a drag strip speedway on an abandoned airstrip at Half Day, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. The organization's expenses currently are underwritten by Arnold Merrimont, a Chicago manufacturer of automotive products and a racing enthusiast. Merrimont says his company backs ATAA programs for its role in fostering highway safety and in developing future automotive engineers. This year's expanded racing program calls for supervised racing in 15 cities in eight states. The true hot rodder is proud of his title, Merrimont says. To him, the public menace is the shot rodder who roars down public roads and souped up defective jalopies thinking only of speed and never of safety. Merrimont says ATAA now represents some 5,000 hot rodders in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana. We expect to go national soon, Merrimont said. Enthusiasm is so great that when ATAA invited 26 hot rod leaders to a planning meeting in Chicago, 53 showed up. ATAA officials have been receiving inquiries about drag strip programs for several, from several states. Unlike the reckless shot rodder, Merrimont continued, the hot rodder builds for a combination of high speed with maximum safety. We feel that a drag strip quote-unquote, a safe off-the-street area will provide a controlled meeting place where the hot rodder could educate the shot rodder in building for safety first and speed second. Stiff ATAA safety regulations guarantee that every car in perfect operating condition before it is permitted on the strip. Safety belts and crash helmets are the standard equipment. In 25 Sundays of racing at Merrimont Speedway last summer, there have been no recorded accidents. Some races drew up to 3,000 fans and 300 entries, one ATAA contest at St. Charles, Missouri in November attracted 140 competitors and 2,000 spectators. This story in its entirety was run in so many newspapers across the country that the ATAA's phone and membership began to literally blow up overnight. So, the NHRA is, at this point in time, still a little bit bigger than the ATAA, but things are going to make a big change in 1954. The big breakthrough NHRA scored in 1954 was Wally Parks teaming up with the Aetna Insurance Company. And when Wally Parks got with Aetna and was able to generate an insurance policy for NHRA and for NHRA members, this became a major, major breakthrough for him. And the ATAA was not uh, too far behind them. The ATAA initially used Lloyds of London for their insurance provider and then down the road switched over to the Indemnity National Insurance Company. So the story of Wally Parks getting Aetna insurance is interesting because he worked with a man named Don Zemer. Don Zemer was the safety engineer, lead safety engineer for Aetna Insurance. He was a wheel in the company. 
and apparently was into hot rodding and or drag racing because somehow Wally gets to Don Zemer and Zemer attends NHRA sanctioned races. He follows the safety safari. He goes to places with them. He watches the procedures and he watches what people are doing. And he goes back to Aetna, files his report after following these guys around through most of 1954 and says, hey, this is like the most comprehensive program I've ever seen. These are all young people. These are people that if they know we're insuring them, could be good customers for us down the road. It's safe. It's being well documented. It's being well run. We should we should get involved here. And so that is how Aetna Insurance became the NHRA's insurance provider. And that is one of the biggest breakthroughs that Wally Parks has in the growing years of the NHRA. Getting the insurance, it cannot be overstated how important that was. And as soon as he got the insurance, it kicked the door down for everybody else. In many ways, businesses monkey see, monkey do, right? Well, once Wally got the insurance, other companies were able to jump in. The ATAA, again, was uh, right behind them, grabbing on. And the ATAA worked with a Chicago man named N. Perry Looster, a company called National Racing Affiliates. And Perry Looster would go on to be um, kind of an infamous name in the sport, but he was one of the biggest insurance providers for drag strips throughout the 1960s and into the 70s before he found himself as a racing promoter and eventually went bankrupt and kind of disappeared himself from the scene. So before we proceed and push the story further, let's take a little bit of a break here. We're going to listen to Brett Kepner explain to us the importance of the reasoning behind and how the hierarchy of hot rodding worked back in the early 1950s. Uh, in a kind of militaristic order, there were racers. Racers would get together and form car clubs. Again, five members, 250 members. There were car clubs of all sizes. Many towns had multiple car clubs. Many areas of multiple towns had really larger numbers of car clubs. Those groups unionized into what were called timing associations. The Southern California Timing Association, the only one that anybody can usually name, SCTA, which currently runs all activities at El Mirage Dry Lake and at Bonneville on the Salt Flats, is a consortium of 30 car clubs in Southern California. That's what a timing association is. It's the next step in organization above local car clubs. So what the ATAA was, American Timing or Automobile Timing Association of America, was the unionization of all the Chicago area car clubs. And so now I hope that makes a little bit more sense to you when we start talking about the hierarchy of things, because it's so much different than it is today. I want to make sure we're painting a very clear picture here about what these two organizations are doing and how they're doing it. So the other moment in 1954 that is a watershed for drag racing is the very first national event ever held. And it is not the NHRA Nationals of 1955. It is the World Series of Drag Racing held in Lawrenceburg, Illinois by the ATAA. Why is it the first national event ever held? Well, because it's the first time that the words National Drag Racing Championship have ever been used in the same sentence. As crazy as it is to think about, At this time in history, people didn't even understand that you could have such a thing as a drag racing championship or a national champion in drag racing. It is seen by the public as such a 
weird little novelty sport that it's like miniature golf. Is there such thing as a miniature golf national champion? Well, in 1954, the idea of national championship drag racing is just, it's almost farcical to so many people, except for the guys that are involved in the sport. And when the World Series of Drag Racing is announced and executed, all of a sudden the ATAA has, in many ways, jumped ahead of the NHRA in every facet of the sport. They're growing faster, their membership is growing very quickly, and they've now had a premier event which has been publicized over the national news, over the national newspapers, over the news wires. A guy named Art Arfons becomes a national hero right off the bat as he was a winner at the 1954 World Series of Drag Racing. A guy from Akron, Ohio, no one had ever heard of the week before, all of a sudden is a national champion drag racer, and that is something that now millions of kids across the country are aspiring to do. So what does this do for the NHRA? How does this whole thing play out? Again, we go back to Brett Kepner. We talk about the significance of the 1954 World Series of Drag Racing, how it put the NHRA on its back foot, and what Wally Parks' response was to this event. I believe ATAA's decision to run a World Series, which was a very quick decision in late 1954, was an attempt to be the first. Unfortunately, nobody's around anymore to ask this. Uh, And Don Garlitz, this even predates Don Garlitz's activities in drag racing by three years, but he, being very close with the president of ATAA, uh, would probably know whether or not what I'm saying is, is correct or fiction. Now, the NHRA worked out that regional program, but there is no question that the NHRA's first national event at Great Bend, Kansas in 1955 was a response to the World Series. So there you have it. So at this point in the history of drag racing, what many people believe that don't know this story is that the NHRA just sprung up in 1951, and next thing you know, everybody was drag racing in the AT, and the NHRA was running the show. No. The ATAA, by running the World Series in 1954, um, has jumped to the forefront of everybody in this sport, has begun to grow itself membership-wise, racetrack-wise, sanctioning-wise, faster than anything Wally Parks could have ever predicted and it all goes back to Maremont, and it goes back to the money and the clout they have. Wally Park simply didn't have the budget to advertise and to pay at his races. That's the other thing the ATAA was doing, was making payouts to their winners. A $1,000 scholarship for Art Arfons as a kid, except the $1,000 scholarship could be transferred into simply $1,000. And in 1954, $1,000 for a kid from Akron, Ohio, big, big money. NHRA at their small regional events and the events that they were having, you'd get a trophy and a pat on the back and a congratulations. Very different approaches, again. Very different approaches to what the mentality of these organizations was as well. Wally Parks saw himself a little bit as a crusader in some ways. He is reviving the image of hot rodding. He is changing something that is outlaw to something that is organized and something that is successful and something that people can be proud of. Merrimont is looking around going, this is going to be a gold mine. There is unlimited youth potential here in this market. This is going to be fantastic, and I am going to make a pile of money. So as 1954 closes, the ATAA has begun to sanction a lot of races at a lot of little drag strips around the country. The NHRA is continuing to grow, and Wally Parks understands at this point that he has to do something. He has to make a move, because if he doesn't, he is going to get swallowed up whole by this organization out of Illinois, run by Jim Lamona and backed by Arnold Merrimont. 
1955 will roll around. It'll be a watershed year for the NHRA. They will run their first national event. But before we get there, we're going to take a look at a government report filed by the American Society of Planning Officials in May of 1955. The report was called Hot Rods, Car Clubs, and Drag Strips. So this report, which I was able to find through doing some research via the Library of Congress, is fascinating. It's a 25-page report, and the American Society of Planning Officials is a group of people like city planners and zoning officials. And basically, um, you know, we're talking about uh, bureaucrats, if you will, getting together and, and studying the different uh, things that are affecting cities, how, how the, the United States is developing, how urban areas are developing, and how you know, properties and things are being used and allocated. So this report speaks to how deeply by 1955 hot rodding has ingrained itself into the national consciousness. When people in the American Society of Planning Officials are writing government reports about hot rodding, you know it has become a big deal. I'm not going to read you the whole 23-page report, but I pulled some interesting, um, some interesting tidbits out of this baby to, uh, to give you a, a kind of sense of where the world was, where its head was at, and how it viewed drag racing in 1955. So we begin with uh, one of the earlier paragraphs in the report, and I quote, All of the bad characteristics of young drivers have been lumped together in the mind of public of the public as hot-rodding. Police are deluged with calls at all hours from irate citizens protesting the use of public streets for racing, objecting to the roar of engines in the night. Organized campaigns of strict law enforcement and punishment of youthful violators have been used in an attempt to control their mania for speed. Surprisingly enough, among the leaders in the campaign for traffic safety have been a group of young drivers referring to themselves as hot rodders, which has come to the police and other officials to request public recognition in support of hot rodding. The rapid growth and spread of hot rodding is bringing the problem of large numbers of youth drivers and souped-up cars into communities which have not faced it before. Planning commissions will be called upon to work with other city departments and civic groups in developing policies and programs to control hot rodding and bring order to the sport. They'll be asked to find sites suitable for hot rod racing and to make recommendations on zone locations for drag strips. And now it's the crux kind of of this report. A definition of a hot rod from the report. And I quote, A hot rod could be anything from a flashy roadster, beautifully finished with 10 coats of lacquer, to an unsightly combination of four wheels, chassis, and an engine without hood or body enclosure. The one thing that distinguishes the hot rod from other types of automobiles is that it is built up from the component parts and generally modified for speed of other cars. An outside appearance, a hot rod may differ very little from a stock car. The differences differences are in the motor, the chassis, the suspension, and other mechanical features not visible from the outside. Hot rods are designed primarily for rapid acceleration over short distances than for sustained high speeds. The most popular form of hot rod racing is the quote-unquote drag race, in which cars are timed over a quarter-mile straight course. There's another section called Who Are the Hot Rodders? And I quote, For the devotee, hot rod racers are but a small part of the hobby. Almost without exception, the true hot rodder has built his own machine, tested it, and taken it back to the shop for more work. A hot rod is never completed. As soon as the owner has finished his work or achieved his objective, he finds that there are other things that must be done to improve performance. Hot rodding today is widespread. There are indications that the number of hot rodders is growing rapidly in most sections of the country. An official from the National Hot Rod Association estimates that there are now more than 2 million hot rodders in the country and over 45,000 car clubs devoted to hot rod activities. This growth from the small group of hot rodders in the early days in Southern California has taken place despite the efforts of many law enforcement agencies 
to eliminate the sport. We move to the section called Attempts to Eliminate Hot Rodding. In 1947, the California legislature passed an act making it unlawful to participate in or witness a hot rod race. Temporarily, this law was effective in controlling the problem. Hot rodders in a particular locality would be arrested and for some time racing would cease only to start again when excitement abated. The same drivers were caught time and again. While the law could be used to control hot, lot, hot rodding for a short time, it was obviously no solution to the problem. And this is a reverberation of what I mentioned at the very top of this podcast, the California Highway Patrol Program. Because of a large number of hot, rodders were con- hot rod races were conducted on rural roads and unincorporated areas, the California Highway Patrol was faced with the responsibility for enforcing laws against hot rodders and motorcyclists. Having tried all negative means, the patrol decided it would attempt to work with rather than against these groups, and we talked about how effective that program happened to be. Hot rodding was spreading so fast around the country that it had gotten complete attention, and we moved to now the section called the National Organizations. Two national organizations, the National Hot Rod Association and the Automobile Timing Association of America, have tried to establish standards for the sport. They have worked on active publicity campaigns among local officials, police, and safety groups, and have to a large measure succeeded in providing a sane basis for local and national competition, a definition of the NHRA. This organization, founded in 1951, is the older of the two national groups and at present has a membership of about 25,000 hot rodders and lists more than 3,000 clubs as members. Among its chief activities has been the standardization of operations and safety precautions at drag races and the development of classifications for different types of cars entering these races. The NHRA sanctions drag races and has been successful in obtaining liability and participant coverage at reasonable rates for all sanctioned races. The Automobile Timing Association of America. This organization, originally sponsored by Merrimont Automotive Products of Chicago as part of its public relations campaign, has operated largely in the Midwest and Eastern states. In addition to sponsoring a publicity and public relations campaign similar to that of the NHRA, the ATAA has in the past sponsored a World Series of Drag Racing at the Municipal Airport in Lawrenceville, Illinois. The safety regulations of drag racing at at the Municipal Airport races and the classes suggested by the ATAA are similar to those of the NHRA, and there is no basic disagreement between the groups on safety regulations and the staging of drag races. Pretty interesting stuff. And the fact that these two two organizations were basically running off the same rulebook is maybe the most telling part of all. We now move to the section called the drag strips and drag racing. Many people remember the safety slogan, speed is the greatest killer. They believe drag racing should be outlawed and that public officials and police departments should not encourage them. Hot rodders, on the other hand, contend that these events are safe and necessary as part of a legitimate program. Wally Parks, the president of the NHRA, speaking to the National Safety Congress in 1953, summarized the hot rodders' position as follows. These are Wally Parks' words. Hot rodders are not pure scientists or researchers. They are inspired by their hobby by the zest of competition. When they create something, they want to see how it works. The byproduct is usually speed, and the indulgence of speed is the spice that stimulates them in their technical endeavors. We of the National Hot Rod Association insist that speed itself is not evil. We argue that the organized speed events conducted under safe supervised auspices provide the answer. We point to what has been accomplished in California, Texas, New York, Ohio, and other areas to prove our point. Wally Park's talking to the National Safety Council there and talking about drag racing's organization and what it has evolved into finally the last piece of information i'm going to pass along here um 
will come in the form of the popularity of drag racing and the costs of drag racing. So this section entitled Cost. The expense of grading and surfacing a 3,000-foot strip with asphalt or concrete has usually precluded the construction of special drag strips. In Chicago, the ATAA found an abandoned unpaved airstrip, but was unable to find a sponsor willing to pay the cost of paving, which was over $18,000. A quaint number, really, when you look at $2020. Now the popularity of drag racing. Whenever, wherever authorized drag racers have been publicized, they have been attracting participants from distant states as well as the surrounding areas. These races also draw large crowds of spectators. In Livonia, Michigan, for example, monthly races during the summer attracted between 100 and 130 cars for each meet and crowds from five to 6,000 people. About 25,000 people witnessed drag racing there over the course of the season. The Lawrenceville, Illinois World Series attracted 150 drivers from states from Maryland to California and between seven and 10,000 spectators. An unpublicized meet in Toledo, Ohio drew 10,000 spectators. Similar crowds are reported for meets in Nebraska, Kansas, New Jersey, New York, Louisiana, Texas, and Ohio. In California, crowds of 10,000 are not uncommon. Even allowing for exaggeration in the estimated size of crowds, drag racing has proved to be very popular with the public eye. In summary, the report states, Since it appears that hot rods and hot rodders are here to stay, public officials who have not already been faced with the problem may soon have to decide what policy the local government will take regarding the sport. Clearly, the public streets and roads designed for speeds from 35 to 75 miles an hour are not suitable for hot rodding. Yet, if some action is not taken in the early stages of local hot rodding development, it will get out of hand as it did in early 1940s California. So, again, not the most, you know, um, exciting thing to read, I suppose, but it is a it is an fascinating document because now the government is looking at hot rodding and and trying to figure out how society needs to work with the hot rodders because there's so many of them and this whole thing is becoming so popular that uh you know the world needs to work around the hot rodders the hot rodders don't need to work around the world and again the growth spurt is continuing on at a very rapid pace 1955 happens the very first nhra national event happens and we learn now from brett kepner what the implications of that moment truly were uh, of course, the National Hot Rod Association uh, countered that with their first national championship, the uh, Na- NHRA Nationals uh, at uh, Great Bend, Kansas, uh, which to us, being you, me, and the other psychotically hardcore people that are listening to the show, that was a huge drag race. To the rest of the world, not so much. Uh, the NHRA got some wire service media out of it, but it was, you know, the, the classic situation. It had already been done. Sure. You know, every, every, everybody knew about a national drag racing championship, and it was that ATAA deal with that Art Arfons guy. Uh, you know, Calvin Rice did not become Art Arfons after he won Grand uh, Great Bend. So what we see here coming out of 1955 and we're at the end of 1955 right now is that wally parks is suffering a bit of a let's i don't want to say a public relations problem but he's suffering a bit of a publicity problem he's coming from the west coast and hot rodders in the midwest and the east coast are now falling in love with this ataa an organization that's based in illinois an organization that they feel actually represents them better than the west coast organizations can because they're so far away and there is some animus amongst hot rodders as there continues to be even really to this day that you know you got to be from california to get your car in a magazine you got to be from california to get this or that to happen so when 
this Lawrenceburg, Illinois race, this World Series of Drag Racing, becomes such a huge deal and forces Parks' hand to have his own center of the country race, we see the results. One of the events becomes massive in terms of its publicity. The other doesn't really reach that level, and I speak of the NHRA's first race. As Brett Kepner said, very important race to those hardcore fans like us that love the history of the sport, but maybe not as, as big a deal as other events are. Now, let's continue into 1956, and we go to Issue 1, Volume 1 of a magazine called Rod Builder, which is an East Coast magazine. This was published in early 56, and... The title is Eastern Dragsters Challenge Western Supremacy, written by a man named John Edwards. And listen to this. The West Coast, birthplace and for years a stronghold of organized hot rodding, has lost its monopoly on the sport. Organized hot rod clubs are springing up all over the East Coast, throughout the Midwest, from Massachusetts to Florida and inland to the Mississippi, Missouri area. More and more groups are continuing to police themselves and run their own strips. Now this is a story that's based about around the Long Island Hot Rod Association, Talks about some of the races that they've been holding and uh, some of the events and success they have had. Now, it is a thinly veiled story about the Long Island Hot Rod Association. What it is exactly, or I should say what it is more about, is the ATAA. How and why? Well, we continue on. A complete roundup of all the local hot rod clubs is beyond the scope of this article, but the popularity of rodding on the supposedly barren East Coast can be seen in the attendance at the first two World Series of Drag Racing events held in Illinois. Lawrenceville affairs have naturally attracted many enthusiasts from the West, traditionally the home of hot rodding, but the representation from both the East Coast and the Southeast has been remarkable. The World Series is run under the sanction of the Automobile Timing Association of America, the national nonprofit hot rodding organization sponsored by a group of the nation's leading manufacturers of automotive parts. Just as important as the World Series is in building enthusiasm for drag racing is the ATAA's year-round three-ply program designed to further interest in members and the prospective members of hot rodding's clubs. The ATAA's broad, broad programs include a gathering of individual hot rodders into organized chapters, helping the chapters set up and operate drag races, and three, helping them win public support for their activities. Geez, that sounds familiar, right? Oh yeah, it's exactly what the NHRA was doing at the same time, except these guys were potentially doing a better job. Continuing on. On the organizational level, ATAA's events director James K. Lamona meets with local groups to explain the workings of organizing hot rodding and to point out the value of working together toward common goals. World Series motion pictures and other hot rodding and automotive films are provided for local chapter use. In addition, top hot rodders, automotive experts, and racers are available as speakers. Now get this, the ATAA also puts out The Dragster, a publication designed to keep members up to date on developments around the country. They were publishing a magazine in 1956 and it was called The Dragster. Hmm. At the request of local chapters, ATAA helps them find suitable drag strips in their communities and supplies them with timing devices, inclusive insurance coverage, and trophies. The chapters are also assisted with the classification, breakdowns, and safety rules. The ATAA's own Public Relations Council conducts public education campaigns on both the national and local level. Well-planned publicity and direct meetings with police and safety officials lead to a better understanding of the Hot Rodder's contribution to automotive safety. A major phase of this program consists of teaching the public how to differentiate between the serious hot rodders and the menacing shot rodder. So, yeah, this is uh, a very telling piece. And again, this is written under the guise of, hey, we got some racing on the East Coast, but the real, the real part of this piece that's important is the overall outward sales pitch of the ATAA. Now we go 
oh, another 50 pages back in this issue of Rod Builder, and there's a story called Stop Slandering Hot Rodders, written by our old friend Arnold H. Merriman. What is the story? Well, the story is basically his 1954 news piece that has expanded slightly and is uh, published in not only this Rod Builder magazine, it is also published in Speed Age, which is another big publication made by the same company out of Washington, D.C. So Merrimont, flexing his financial muscles again, is basically buying these spots because he's buying advertising in the magazines for Merrimont Automotive Products, and they are running his editorials everywhere. And as much as Stop Slandering Hot Rodders is a, uh, you know, it's playing to the choir. It's written in a hot rod magazine, or hot rodding magazine, I should say. It is written to an audience of people that feel as though they're being talked down to, they're being, you know, uh, ignored and or disaffected. So he is preaching to the choir, but he is preaching this message of, we're better than what people say we are. Stick with me. The ATAA is here. We're, we're an organization that's going to help you. And in so much as this, here are his words, or the words of Arnold H. Merriman's byline anyway, in Rod Builder, and also in Speed Age, both magazines published in early 1956. The hot rodding movement also has gained the support of automotive industry leaders because of the contributions it makes to safety and to automotive engineering. Six major manufacturers have expressed their support by backing the Automotive Timing Association of America, a national nonprofit organization of hot rodders. So one of the major complaints that Eastern racers and hot rodders had about the NHRA and their remoteness being based out in California was the fact that they didn't elect anybody. The NHRA placed the people, Wally placed the people he wanted in the jobs he wanted them in, including the, you know, advisors of the different regions of the country and that type of thing. The ATAA was set up to have elections and... You know, we can say that with a wink and a nudge because when we're talking about elections for a hot rodding club nationally in 1956, it means that um, we're going to do mail-in stuff. And you're going completely on the hope and prayer that um, the people counting the ballots are going to be straight up and honest. And there's no there's no reason for us to suspect that they wouldn't be. But you have to imagine that Merriman and Lamona certainly had people that they favored over others to be in certain positions. So now we take a look at the Speed Age magazine, April 1956. We go to page 35 in the Dragging It Out section. And here is the first indication we get of how the ATAA is going to operate differently than the NHRA and to allay the fears of its members. I quote a story by J. Reed Dawson. Elections for the ATAA officers will be held this spring. This is the first time any national organization of hot rodders has held nationwide elections. Nomination blanks for staff consultants have been sent to all members. The three persons receiving the highest number of nominations from each area will have their name placed on a ballot and sent to all members in that area. Each member will have one vote, and the person who receives the highest number of votes will hold office until the next election. Some 30 people will be elected to the Office of Staff Consultant. They'll represent ATAA in each of the 30 separate areas and keep headquarters informed of the activities in their area. The reports they send to headquarters will be included in future issues of The Dragster, the ATAA's house organ. The staff consultants will comprise the operating crew at the third annual World Series of Drag Racing. While attending the series, members or meetings of the staff consultants will be held and national officers will be nominated. So this is a big deal. Um, this is a big deal because all of a sudden now we have this idea of there's going to be sections of the country. There's going to be some, dare we say, divisions of the ATAA out there from 
30 different places. And we're not just talking Illinois anymore. The ATAA is spreading its wings rapidly, moving to the southeast and the east coast as well as the central part. They're not moving west, and the reason they're not moving west is because, to Wally Parks' credit, he has done such a good job locking down that part of the country that they don't feel as though um, they can be competitive there at this time. So they're concentrating east and south. And at the end of this um, story here by J. Reed Dawson, we'll quote one last section. Three new chapters have joined the ATAA. They are the Ramblin' Rotters of Eagle River, Wisconsin, the Road Gobblers of Wheeling, Illinois, and the Camp Snappers of Auburn, Michigan. Getting those clubs in, that's how you get the membership, that's how you get the people, and that's how you're able to continue growing your organization. Moving on to the next month, this is May of 56, dragging it out, we have the election notes. Nominations for the ATAA staff consultants opened around March 15th with blanks sent out to all the members. 30 days from the mailing date, the ballots are due back to ATAA headquarters on South Ashland Avenue in Chicago. The men elected as staff consultants will have rather large territories to cover and will therefore be empowered to appoint two assistants if necessary. And again, this is a reinforcement of the fact that, hey, we're different than those guys out west. We're electing people. We're uh, giving you a chance to have a voice in this thing. We're going to be at your events. We're going to have all these different people out there doing these jobs to make sure we have the best hot rodding association and you are best represented. And again, it builds into this idea of at the end of the year, you're going to come to the World Series of Drag Racing and race against everybody from all these different areas. And we're going to build up the stories, tell you who's fast, who needs to be paid attention to, and who's going to be a hero at the World Series of Drag Racing. 1956 is shaping up to be a banner year for the ATAA, but how is it shaping up to be in the NHRA? Let's take a look. Malona's momentum was just crazy going into 1956. In 1956, Bob Bartell had been promoting events in the South with Ed Otto. Uh, Ed Otto had started drag racing, had started drag races uh, in 1952 on Long Island, New York. Bob Bartell, who in a couple of years would build Cordova, what we call now Cordova International Raceway, uh, was instrumental in starting the drag racing program in Florida that ran in conjunction with Speed Week. Gotcha. Uh, which was in January, of course, uh, the Daytona 500 uh, and uh, all the other stuff that was run on the beach. You know, people have to remember that Daytona Speedway wasn't built till 59. Uh, th this was run on the beach, as were land speed record attempts, as were the drag races yes. run on the beach. In any case, uh, an association sprang up in late 1955 that quickly dominated the Southeast. Uh, I mean, it just became the biggest deal it became the ATAA or the NHRA of Southeast Drag Racing. And it was the ITA, the International Timing Association. Uh, Bob Osicki was the president of that. In 1956, Osicki teamed with Lamona. Wow. And that brought a ton of tracks into Lamona's fold, but it also allowed them to split the money, as it were. Gotcha. Uh, Lamona brought, you know, his Marymount, uh, stuff with him. Osiki brought a ton of racetracks and, and literally, uh, between 1956 
and I should say between 1955 and 1956, the ATAA doubled its track roster. And you got to remember, NHRA's track roster at the time wasn't that big. It was less than 100 tracks. And uh, ATA, what ATAA and ITA together went well over 250 tracks. And so the meteoric rise of the ATAA continues, and now you really start to get a picture as to what's going on. And we move right into 1957 and getting close to the climax of this story. Now, 1957, I am referencing a story in Rod Builder. It is an annual magazine. This is the second edition. The first one came out in 56. It is a story written by Gerald Payne called Should You Join a Hot Rod Association? And now is when we really start to see the claws come out between these two organizations. The story begins. Hot Rodding, the lusty infant of the world of automotive sports, is growing up fast, and its almost 500,000 enthusiasts are desperately searching for a responsible organization to represent them in their struggle for national acceptance. It goes on to outline a little bit about the NHRA, saying that the NHRA has supposedly 40,000 paid members. Then it says the ATAA came along two years later from a Chicago location, and originally sponsored by the Merrimont Automotive Products Group. It has spread the good word across the land and now has a membership claimed of over 30,000. Both of these outfits are now well established, but that doesn't stop others from trying. A group of conscientious hot rodders in Pittsburgh felt that neither the sponsored ATAA nor the undemocratic NHRA was giving the hot rodder what he wanted, and their leader, Walt Metzer, went recruiting for an entirely new organization called the AHRA, of which we won't get into in this story because it's already getting long enough. Walt Menzer may be right, the story goes on to say. After all, what really counts is the hot rodder himself, and is he getting a fair shake? Between the NHRA and the ATAA, there exists a natural rivalry for new members. Sometimes the competition is friendly, and sometimes not so friendly. How would you like it if a neighbor came over and borrowed some matches, and then on his way out he deliberately set fire to your house? Supposedly, that's just about the way the National Hot Rod Association feels about the Automotive Timing Association of America. They went out of their way to help the ATAA get started. They sat with promoters. They gave them advice and materials and wished them luck. NHRA is said to feel that they were taken. ATAA looks to them like a subtle scheme to exploit the innocent hot rodder and publicize Merrimont Automotive Products, its originator and chief sponsor. On the other hand, the ATAA snorts at the suggestion they might be using the organization for Merrimont's profit. Arnold Merriman is simply a friend of responsible hot-rodding. Many experts claim the NHRA wanted to be the absolute dictator of the sport, and as proof, they have cited the fact that NHRA hasn't held an election since the day it was founded. They wondered whether all the NHRA's interest in hot-rodding wasn't really just a smokescreen to sell more hot-rod magazines. What with Wally Parks being the head of NHRA and the editor of Hot Rod, the ATAA thinks that they have some pretty sound arguments. The real truth of the matter is hard to determine, the easier way to find out is to check the background of both outfits to see what they've been doing, and particularly what they've been doing well. And it goes on to talk a little bit about the early days of what NHRA did and how they got founded. It also talks about the NHRA's uh, events, how they're helping to grow hot rodding, and basically um, the reality of why they don't have elections. And they quote Ack Miller on this one. Besides not allowing themselves to be replaced, the NHRA officials kept a tight rein all over the country. They appointed all their local representatives and ignored all pleas for holding any type of local elections for their reps. Ack Miller thinks he has the answer to this one. How can you get anything done, he argues hotly, if your president comes from Fort Worth, your secretary's in Seattle. It's swell to be democratic, but any time you try to run a business on the basis of popularity, you're in for trouble. We pick representatives that we feel will do the best job, not just the guy who wins the most trophies. 
little bit of a dig back at the ATAA and what they were doing in terms of elections. So now we go to the ATAA side of things. And on the same issue, the ATAA tries to satisfy both the hot rodder and their backers. The Public Relations Board, a publicity concern in Chicago, had a great say in the administering of the program during the first year and a half of the ATAA. Now a full-time national events director maintaining his own office runs the show. The Public Relations Board still has the function of publicizing ATAA and giving public relations advice in connection with its various activities. Money is provided by, now get this, Merrimont, Champion Spark Plugs, Holly Carburetors, and Proto Tools, as well as a growing list of other manufacturers each year. This is racer Lloyd Scott, driver of the famed Bustle Bomb, says, Personally, I like the way ATAA is set up, maintain the top hot rodder. I like an outfit that lets you elect its own officers. I don't believe in a national organization run by a magazine. I like meet where the guys who are competing are putting on the show. That's how they should have a say in how it's run. The end of commercialism that Scott tosses out is a label that has been pinned on the NHRA. It has been accused of being a circulation builder for Hot Rod Magazine. On the other hand, Arnold Merriman is a, the big sponsor of the ATAA, is accused of using it mainly to publicize his automotive products. His board chairman does not deny it. The implication is that there's nothing wrong with helping a group in the long run that will also help you. It can also be pointed out that the NHRA is not free of any taint of commercial sponsorship either. Firms have given substantial financial support to the NHRA. And so the quiet battle rages. Actually, what really counts is that both clubs have a lot more, give a lot more than they take. Now, he does go on to give credit here. This is the insurance part of this, which is, which is to me, very important. Quoting the story. For example, until the NHRA came along, insurance was a dirty word. The only company that would touch drag meets was Lloyd's of London, and all they would consider were the spectators. Then the NHRA convinced the highly conservative Aetna company that hot, the hot rodder could be a safe bet. Aetna was highly skeptical. They dispatched a KG safety engineer named Don Zemer to look things over. He studied NHRA's rules and attended dozens of meets. Finally, his report was ready. Quoting Zemer, It's the greatest safety program, Zemer reported, that I have ever seen in 20 years of industrial engineering work. The payoff seemed came soon after when Aetna issued a policy for $0.25 cents a day. This provided coverage of up to $1,500 for accidents and death. Disability allowances of $40 a week for 52 weeks were also provided. One of the longest strides in hot rod history had been taken. The ATAA wasn't far behind. A few months later, they arranged for the indemnity insurance company to provide the same coverage at the same low cost. Both organizations have a list of safety rules that are identical to each other. As a matter of record, ATAA gives NHRA credit for setting most of them up. Lastly, another fun point here. Another criticism that applies to both outfits is that they ignore each other's activities. After all, complains a fan, it's the sport that counts, right? Backing up this crack is the fact that Hot Rod Magazine refuses to mention a recent ATAA World Series held in Illinois. The Dragster, ATAA's house organ, returned the compliment by overlooking the national championships put on by NHRA at Great Bend, Kansas a month later. But in the overall picture, it's conceded by most critics that both the ATAA and NHRA are greater than the sum of their faults. And now the end of the story is, is the kind of the point. As hot rodder Mickey Thompson, who runs a drag strip for the Lions Club, says, when is the NH Whether it's the NHRA or ATAA, you have to thank them both for the big assist in making the sport safer and giving it better acceptance. Sure, there are things wrong with them. Show me a business that doesn't have room to improve. Let them feud a little. Who cares? Everybody gets the benefit. 1957 would be the height of the battle between the NHRA and the ATAA. And this battle, little did anybody know, would be won not by Wally Parks, 
not by Jim Lamona, and potentially not by Arnold Merriman. It would be won at the World Series in 1957 by a beauty queen, a beauty queen named Sally Rocker. In one of the most bizarre twists in the story, Sally Rocker will set in to motion a series of events that will forever change the direction of the sport of drag racing. This is truly where things get weird and they get pretty entertaining. And I know it's taken us a while to get here, but this is such a, an important story in drag racing history. I wanted to make sure we told it in a very detailed way. So now that we are here in 1957 at the World Series of Drag Racing, um, it is 8 p.m. on Friday night at the World Series of Drag Racing. And we have the beauty contest, which was a big part of the event every single year. And this report comes from a very small newsletter called The Timer, which was the newsletter of the Gopher State Timing Association. We've gone through what timing associations are, this group of hot rod clubs that are all uh, excitedly competing at this World Series of Drag Racing, and they have, as basically every club at the meet, has sponsored an entrant into the beauty contest. And there was some uh, celebrity judges there, a guy who won $32,000 on the famed $64,000 question show, um, a guy named Robert Wolfson of the Merrimont Automotive uh, Group, a man named John Tuey of Accurate Clutches, and Jim Lamona were the celebrity judges for the beauty contest. Now, if you can imagine this actually causing controversy, it, is, uh, it speaks to drag racing and hot rodding and all this stuff. Anyway... As the story in the Gopher, or rather in the Timer um, newsletter goes, that uh, all these clubs had uh, gone ahead and had their entrance uh, entered into the beauty contest, and people were, you know, plying their wares, and there was a woman involved in the contest named Sally Rocker. And Sally Rocker was um, a woman who was very beautiful, kind of looked like uh, James Man Jane Mansfield, kind of had a little bit of a of a whole Marilyn Monroe thing going on, very attractive woman who caught the attention of um, a couple of the judges the night before at a restaurant where they were eating dinner, and they decided to enter her into the contest. Now, because she wasn't sponsored by any of the clubs, and then she was voted the winner of the beauty contest, this caused major problems. Uh, to read out of the story from the the Timer, which is dated Friday, October 11th, 1957. This is a story written about the controversy at the beauty contest. There seemed to be a general discontent over the judge's decision, and many were heard to say that they thought the contest was fixed. There is not too much known about Sally Rocker, as she was not sponsored by any of the clubs in attendance, and when questioned about that, one official informed me that the girl from the Quad City area, could any girl from the Quad City ent could enter the contest without a sponsor. We hesitate to repeat hearsay, but there was an unforeclosed rumor that the Count and Mr. Wolfson had something to do with Miss Rocker being in the contest. View of the results of the contest, this does not seem too illogical. All the Gopher State Timing Association members and many from other states who were at the World Series were of the same opinion that there were other girls competing who would have been a better representation of our association. Not the least of these was our own contestant, Lee Yukin, who was told by a very good source, won the first ballot, but evidently two votes were better than one. Somehow, Jim Lamona hears that this story has been written by a guy named Ron Johnson and is adamant that the story not be published, and if it is published, that there's going to be hell to pay for the Gopher State Timing Association organization. Well, they went ahead and published the story anyway. Lamona gnashed his teeth. There was a bunch of problems back and forth. 
And what Jim Lamona might not have known, and what nobody really knew at this point, was that this story, this little story from this little Timing Association newsletter, would have major ramifications. Because when we start to do the math about how the whole thing kind of unfolds over the next six months, this is where the problems begin and the beginning of the end of the ATAA starts. Remember, Arnold Merriman is an incredibly rich man. He's uh, got everything in the world. He's an art collector. He specializes in what they call pre-Columbian art, which is artwork from South America before any European settlers arrived down there. He is a guy that um, is a philanthropist. He's super involved in the city of Chicago. And he is a part, trying to become a part, of the political machine because Arnold Merriman, after accomplishing all he has in his life, like a lot of rich guys, wants to go into politics. He wants, his life's ambition was to become a senator in the United States Congress. And when you want to become a senator in the United States Congress in 1957, the last thing in the world you need is your name attached to some weird flunky beauty contest that has been fixed by people who work for you. That would be very bad. And we can understand this as we look back at a story written by a guy named Mike Royko, a very famous writer from Chicago, one of the most famous political reporters probably in American history. And this was a, a written an excerpt from a book named Boss about the story of Richard Daly. Uh, if you know anything about American politics, you know you know the Daly family in Illinois, you know, like the Kennedys in Massachusetts, they wielded incredible power. But this speaks to Arnold Merrimont, the man who wanted to go into politics. Read this. Merriman has done it all. He contributed money, worked in Governor Kerner's campaign, led a campaign to pass a $150 million bond issue that revitalized the state's mental health program and pitched in on numerous liberal causes in mental health as well as welfare programs. His dream was to be a U.S. senator, and in early 1961, he went to Daly's office and told him that he'd like to run against Senator Everett Dirksen. He made it clear that he wanted to do it properly and not just jump into the primary as a maverick. The party's blessing was what he was after. Daly showed interest, but he said he had certain reservations and he mainly wasn't sure if a downstate country chairman would support a Jewish candidate. He suggested that Merrimont tour the state, talk to the county chairman, and he indicated strongly that if Merrimont made a good showing, he'd be Daly's man. Daly did as he was asked, touring the state and sending regular reports back to Bailey. They'll vote for a Jewish candidate. Elated, he headed back to Chicago, ready to give Daly his final report and the good news. He got back into town just in time to pick up that day's papers and read that Daly had indeed decided to slate a Jewish senatorial candidate, Congressman Sidney Yates, a party regular. That ended Merrimont's political ambitions. Furious, he was convinced that Daly had merely used him to conduct a free one-man survey of downstate Illinois. And you know, while I realize this is 1961, it speaks to his political ambitions and the fact that he certainly had them in 1957 when the problem happened with the beauty contest at the World Series. So what does this have to do with anything? How does this beauty contest and this guy wanting to be a politician have anything to do with the uh, you know supposed price of tea in China? Well, what happens as we get into early 1958, there is a notice that is sent out to basically all the drag strips in the country about a conference that will be held in Chicago. It's going to be a big drag strip clinic, basically. And at this clinic will be everybody that's a big name in drag racing. You'll have Wally Parks there. You'll have Jim Lamona there. You'll have representatives from racetracks across the country. You'll have people from the sanctioning bodies. You'll have everyone in one place in order to get better at their jobs, in order to help grow the sport and to make the industry better. This conference would be one of the most historically significant moments in drag racing. It would be one of the most confusing singular moments in drag racing. 
In some ways, it was very successful, and in other ways, it was just a very shocking moment. So let's fast forward. We've gone to 1957. We've, we understand what's happened in 57. NHRA's banned Nitro, yada, yada, yada. But the real part of this story is the beauty contest. We jump now into March of 1958. We go to drag news from the week of March 22nd, 1958. And March 15th, Chicago, Illinois. Improved operational techniques and countless other items of more efficient drag strip operation took a collective and large stride forward during the National Racing Affiliates Incorporated sponsored drag racing clinic held at the Southmore Hotel. On hand were owners and or operators of 16 drag strips representing 10 eastern and midwestern states and California. Jim Lamona of the now non-existent Automobile Timing Association of America. Wait a second, what? Did I just say the now non-existent Automobile Timing Association of America? The massive timing association that had taken storm, had run over the NHRA, had grown exponentially in the southeastern United States. The non-existent Automobile Timing Association of America? It's exactly what I said. Because on Sunday, at this meeting, Wally Parks was making basically the keynote address. He stood up in front of the group of all the Drag strip operators that were present welcomed them, thanked them for their attendance, and then announced the fact that the NHRA had merged with the ATAA, and the ATAA was immediately and utterly part of the NHRA. Everybody that was an ATAA member was now an, an NHRA member. Anybody that had anything to do with ATAA management now had nothing to do with ATAA management, and that includes Jim Lamona. The breathless reporting from Drag news continues here. ATAA merger with NHRA announced Wally Parks to head new organization. A merger of the nation's two large major organizations representing virtually all organized hot rodding activity, the NHRA and ATAA, was announced on March 14, 1958. The joint announcement was made by Wally Parks, the NHRA president and editor of Nash of Hot Rod Magazine, as well as Arnold H. Merrimont, president of Merrimont Automotive Products and the chairman of the board of ATAA. They said that by pooling their efforts and achievements of their combined memberships, they'll be able to accelerate the campaign for universal acceptance of hot rodding. The action will affect nearly 1 million young automotive enthusiasts participating in thousands of organized car clubs, drag strip competition events, and other special activities through 48 states. Retaining the name National Hot Rod Association, the expanded organization will be headed by Wally Parks, president of the NHRA, and the headquarters will remain in Los Angeles. Under the reorganized program, NHRA will be the parent organization for some 10,000 hot rod clubs and the coordinating media for thousands of yearly hot rodding events, ranging from high school auto safety campaigns to club and association auto shows. NHRA, organized in 1951 and ATAA later, have helped build hot rodding from a disorganized and often dangerous activity into an integrated and safe sport, according to Parks, who has remained active in the sport since the 1930s. Accomplishments of the two groups include the establishment of systems of standardization of operation of drag strips, a program of specialized insurance for events and drivers in lower age groups, and the popularization of car clubs participating in civic benefit projects and substantial reduction in violation of traffic accidents among teenage drivers. Whoa. This wasn't a microphone drop. This was an absolute and utter bomb drop on the world of drag racing and nobody saw this coming not Jim Lamona the only people that knew what was coming were Merrimont and were Parks let's go back to Brett Kepner on this merger and I, I pointed out Jim Lamona was a, a very successful promoter and self-promoter 
And having worked with, you know, a pretty fair number of, of those guys, and I'm talking about the good ones, the successful ones, they all had a price. Oh, yeah. Be- because everything had a price. And, uh, you know, Wally didn't have a price. W- Wally wasn't going to lose that battle. Uh, Wally was a crusader, as uh, a certain actor would have said. Yeah. He's a water walker. Uh, he uh, he fought for a belief, and uh, Jim Lamona was here to make money. So I have to believe that one of two things happened. The one that I tend to lean towards less is that Lamona called Wally and said, hey, if you're interested, here's the price. I, for reasons good or bad, in my mind, I've always assumed that Wally made the call and said how much. As one might imagine, this news went across the world of drag racing and hot rodding like wildfire. This was... This was the merger of the two biggest dogs in the park, and they were, it wasn't even a merger. It was the NHRA, the fish, swallowing the whale. The little company coming around the corner and somehow ending up with all the property, with all the gold and riches in the mine, and for some reason, the ATAA kind of not giving in, likely just selling out. And I mentioned that 57 I mentioned that 57 beauty contest because, in my opinion, Jim, uh, rather Arnold Merrimont, went, oh boy, this could be bad for me, and he started likely looking for a way out. And to Brett's point, I think when that phone call inevitably came from Wally Parks and said how much, and a guy that had the access to Robert E. Peterson and his money, uh, Robert E. Peterson was likely a guy that could, one, stroke a check big enough to get Arnold Merrimont's attention, and B, provide Merrimont a promotional avenue to advertise his products for discount rates in those hot rod magazines that he was making and the other publications he had. So at the end of the day, Robert E. Peterson, in my mind, none of this is public, and that's the amazing part of the story. No one knows the details of how this happened, but we can just do circumstantial evidence here and go, okay, Parks really didn't have that much money. So he had to have gone to Peterson, we assume, for the money. And then Peterson likely cut a deal with Merrimont. They worked uh, They worked some magic here to get this thing done. But it is um, an amazing thing. And the editorial coverage of this um, really got, uh, got pretty interesting pretty quickly because um, there was marked concern. There was some happiness, but a lot more people were very freaked out at what happened here. And Dean Brown was the editor of drag news at this time and Brown published the following editorial. And this is kind of the way it was approached. Since man ventured out of the cave, he has, he has seen the need to organize. Sometimes that need has become so great that man and his fellow man have organized. Sometimes man and his fellow man have progressed beyond the organizational and the idea stage and have gone on to accomplish some good for themselves, which presumably was the purpose of organizing in the first place. Sometimes the association grew and prospered. Many times the association became so enamored with its importance that it failed. Consequently, nowadays, when the word association is even mentioned, great shrieks arise about the loss of identity, rule by fear, or even worse, no leadership at all. Just join because you're supposed to. It's the thing you're supposed to do. Surely you're aware of what that association will do for you, right? Won't the tide of enthusiasm generated by everyone belonging to be sufficient in order to ensure the success of both the association and those who belong? Frankly, it will not. If all the members of any association, large or small, receive a membership card which says in effect, by golly, George, now you're one of us, before long, George will ask, one of what? 
What does this association do for me? It's at the same time that a purely selfish and completely fair question to ask. Not only must the individual member serve the association, the association must serve the member. A member just being a member is not enough. There must be something something else which will make the individual want to belong and equally important continue to belong to the organization. Hot Rodding in general has at present several associations and many of those associations are concerned one way or another with drag racing. Some are doing a notable job in behalf of drag racing while others are not. New associations will undoubtedly spring forth in the coming months and these will be judged among other ways by one simple yardstick used now. Are there members, people who will hold up their end of the bargain by first of all viewing their membership cards as something other than a receipt? Do you now if you belong to one of these organizations? Two very good questions there asked by Dean Brown, and his point is pretty valid. Is there any reason to be in one of these things? And if you're in one of these things, has it done anything to help you or is it helping us? And we know at the end of the day that these organizations were vital in drag racing's growth and in the ability for drag racing to actually live and turn into a sport. I hope you understand the craziness of the fact that this thing started as just guys at Hot Rod Club screwing around, and now we're talking about a national organization in the form of the NHRA having a basically sway over the activity of millions of people this, at this time uh, in history. And I say sway, I mean an influence. Uh, they're able to influence things. They're able to help out. And, of course, they've grown now with this merger to, to have the biggest slice of the drag racing and competitive pie. So what about Jim Lamona? We asked about him, and we brought him up, and Jim Lamona had to have been in on this thing, right? We heard from Brett Kepner just moments ago thinking that, you know, Lamona, hey, he's, the guy's here to make a living. He's here to make some dollars in racing, and that is uh, his drive versus the cause of Wally Parks. Well, Jim Lamona, in the August issue of Rod Builder and Customizer magazine in August of 1958, Jim Lamona penned a story and basically said Hot Rodding's Big Merger was the title. It is written in his name supposedly by him and Jim Lamona says in effect I knew nothing about this nobody told me anything and I basically went to this meeting and found out that I no longer have a job or any sort of influence in a sport that I was basically before this meeting started kind of the most important guy out there and now Wally is taken over and I have no spot in Jim Lamona's words from August 1958 rod builder and customizer Last March 13th, it was announced that the Automobile Timing Association has merged with the NHRA. The announcement came as quite a surprise to everybody, including myself. It seems that Wally Parks, as president of the NHRA, and Arnold Merriman, as chairman of the board for ATAA, worked out a plan mutually beneficial to both parties without, to my best knowledge, discussing the details with anyone else. The merger was billed as a move to unite the entire sport behind the campaign for universal acceptance of organized hot rodding. This, certainly, this is certainly a fine idea, but knowledge of just a few facts causes one to wonder just how good an idea it really was. Hot rodders, as you and I well know, have to be sold on something before they back it. Therefore, those who were in ATAA and Saldi behind it had already decided against joining NHRA for their own reasons, and therefore resent anyone making that decision for them. It is then doubtful that many of the ATAA's old members will back NHRA. Specifically, the only, only one of NHRA's sanctioned drag strip is considering the NHRA sanctioned at this writing, to the best of my knowledge. In my opinion, all this makes rather a hollow shell of the ATAA that was merged into the NHRA. And from the conversations I've had with various people, I can't help but believe NHRA expected just that to happen. You might then wonder why NHRA should bother going through the motions of a merger. I think the answer to that question becomes pretty obvious when you look at the history of the ATAA and NHRA during the last two years. Now this is fascinating. 
In 1956, NHRA was definitely the biggest gun in hot rodding, sanctioning 659 meets, while in the same year, ATAA only began with a sanction program holding a little over 70 sanctioned meets. However, in 1957, things were different. The NHRA combined shows signs of slowing, adding only 21 meets to its 1956 total to make 680 for 1957. At the same time, ATAA more than tripled its sanctions for a total of nearly 250 meets. The 1958 picture was becoming quite clear prior to the time the merger was made, and it didn't look too good for NHRA as nearly as I could determine. From the number of strips that had requested ATAA sanction before March 10th, ATAA would have conservatively sanctioned more than 500 meets in 1958, double that of 57. At the same time, it appears NHRA would have lost some of its strips to bring its total track sanctions below the 1957 level. It was not impossible to think that the ATAA's volume may have led the NHRA's by the end of the year. Naturally, when an organization is in jeopardy of being toppled from the number one spot in its field, you must expect it to fight for its life. It's a little harder to understand the move on Mr. Merrimont's part, though. Merrimont Automotive Products started ATAA's and invested a considerable amount of money helping it to become a leader in the sport. As a public relations program, it was a tremendous bargain and delivered three times the publicity for the muffler maker than all other programs combined at a fraction of the cost. To hand over the best publicity getting you ever had doesn't seem to make much sense to many people, especially when the ATAA was moving close to the number one spot it had worked so hard for and where Merrimont could capitalize on the investment with ATAA, continuing to give the corporation publicity without the need for heavy financial aid. Perhaps there are other reasons for Merrimont's horse trading of ATAA, and if there are, they're being kept very quiet. All in all, I don't think either party got any bargain for the exchange. It looks as if Merrimont got a black eye in the minds of ATAA members and lost the company's number one publicity gimmick. The NHRA, on the other hand, got what many well, may well be the hollow shell of an association plus an amount of cash which I doubt was as large as it had hoped for. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even look as if the competition had stopped. Those strips and clubs that went independent when they received notice of the ATAA are being dissolved have banded together to form a new association incorporating the best features of the old association. While the group hasn't settled on a permanent address yet, it will be announced over the next issue of Rod Builder and Customizer and will be located in Chicago. From the way things the new group from the way things are looking, the new group named the American Timing Activities Association is shaping up it may nearly be as big at the end of the year as the old AATA would have been. The ATAA, the new version of it, incidentally, was run by Jim LaMona. And yes, it was around for a little while, but it really didn't achieve much of anything. So LaMona says, I didn't know anything about this. Merrimont and Parks had some backroom deals. And I think LaMona is backwards in his assessment that LaMona, uh, rather that Merrimont paid Wally Parks. I think it is absolutely the opposite. I also feel that his math involving the size of the two organizations is wrong in terms of which one was the bigger one at the moment that the merger occurred. We now move to Rod Builder and Customizer, September 1958, and cooler heads beginning to prevail in some ways about the merger. This by Robert Lee Beam, and Beam was a great drag racing writer this era, covered a lot of stuff. In his tips from the strips column, he says, By now the ATAA-NHRA merger is common knowledge. When it happened in March, it was the hottest conversation item in the 15 years of hot rodding. Now that the furor has died down, we can appraise the effectiveness of the action. Wally Parks, who took over as head of both groups, retaining the name NHRA, has long been a controversial figure in rotting news. There have been many who took the barbed jabs at Parks because he was both the editor of a magazine and the president of NHRA, claiming private interests ruled his actions. 
Others took violent exception to the political setup in NHRA protesting that open elections for all offices would be the democratic thing to do. Through storms and arguments, Parks remained unruffled, keeping himself and the NHRA above the charges, countercharges, and name-calling swirling around them. The merger has given Parks another chance to prove that he has the interest of the American hot rodder at heart. He has been more than equal to the challenge. Parks has put in long hours, often thankless hours, organizing the two groups into an effective unit. His realistic treatment of the merger, which occurred without advance warning, has assured dignified treatment for all AA or other ATAA members who chose to remain in the new association. Parks, it seemed to me, rates congratulations for his handling of this matter. So now people are saying, hey, this guy's awesome. Look at this guy putting in the hours, putting in the work. And I like how Beam writes in that editorial, almost like almost like the ATAA was vanquished, how he says that the members will be treated with dignity, like they're, you know, members of a, a losing army that have been captured by the, by the, you know, Attila the Hun and the NHRA. Now let's check in with Brett Kepner on his impression of Lamona's reaction and the merger. I was always confused by that article because even no matter how many times I read it later and later and later in my life, in other words, the more and more experience I had in business, uh, it always seemed to be either serious, you know, sincere, which just didn't fit right, or it was a 1950s version of an NDA. Maybe. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's another angle to put it, sure. You know, it was a non-disclosure agreement on the conditions of the sale, and he was just literally in a 1950s way saying, sorry guys, my lips are sealed. I think the bottom line on the Lamona Parks end of things is Lamona had no reason to sell and Parks had every reason to buy. Yes. Yes. So, That's what makes it so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I got to figure that Wally, it only makes sense if we're you know envisioning potential scenarios. It only makes sense that Wally called up with the intent that he was going to end that phone call with a sale. Yes, yeah, because it is, uh, I mean... Just give me a number and don't argue, and every time you say a word, shut up and give me another number. All the ATAA tracks went right to AHRA. Hardly any of them went to NHRA. And the same can be said for a lot of the members, as we have a reader letter in the October 1958 issue of Rod Builder and Customizer. This reader named Ed... Ed Spinoli from Springfield, Massachusetts, writes in a letter entitled ATAA All the Way. Sirs, it was with great interest that I read Jim Lamona's article in the August issue of Rod Builder and Customizer on the recent ATAA-NHRA merger. As an active rotter in the Northeast, I belong to ATAA, which sanctioned and supervised most of the dragging in my neck of the woods. NHRA was little more than a name I read in various rotting publications, and its activities never seemed to extend to this section of the country. It seems to me that NHRA has always been active out west, which is, for a supposedly national organization, not, to my mind, very good policy. I can't see the sense of joining NHRA, an organization that, to my knowledge, isn't too active way up here, since I have no guarantee that it will be expanding its operations along the east coast. And until NHRA proves to me and a lot of fellows up here who share my love of hot rodding that it is really going to do what it looks says it will do and look out for our interests, I doubt that it will gain very much membership in the way of northeastern people. At least it's going to have to prove itself to me before it gets mine. That was the thing that Wally Parks had to fight, but he never really had to fight it that hard again because he was the guy, and NHRA was the organization. And yes, the AT, rather the AHRA came along. There were other very small timing associations that popped up, other small organizations, but 
by and large, from 1958 until the very moment I'm making this podcast, the NHRA has been the dominant force in drag racing, with the IHRA coming and going, the AHRA coming and going, and other organizations kind of popping up along the way. It is a very interesting thing to, to, to this day to not really know what happened during those meetings in early 1958. We will never actually know what the conversations were, what the price tag was, and what it took for Wally Parks to get Arnold Merrimont to step away from the ATAA and to hand the keys to him for an unspecified amount of money. Was it the beauty contest controversy? Did Merrimont start to get feel for, fearful for his political ambitions? Were the business ambitions he had to take Merrimont to the stock exchange as a public company were those weighing on him some was this become a a distraction to his core business we'll never really know any of that Merrimont never talked about it again the interesting tie-ins of course um the 1958 NHRA Nationals the winner of that race among other things won a pickup truck supplied by Merrimont Automotive Products plot twist right Wally and Arnold Merrimont definitely had a relationship that went far past these meetings in March of 1958. The Automobile Timing Activities Association that Jim Lamona started continued to sanction drag races, most notably the World Series. And the World Series of Drag Racing still takes place today. Bob Bartell built the drag strip in Cordova, Illinois, moved the racetrack or moved the race there, and it has been there every single year since the early 1950s except for one when the IHRA decided to move it for one year to Memphis it was a horrendous failure and it has gone back many people in drag racing myself included choose not even to think about that one year in Memphis as part of the legacy of the World Series because it is such a spectacular event one of the splinter organizations that grew out of this merger was an organization called the National Association of Drag Strips which was shortened down to its four letters and the name to NADS NADS, and that was done 100% on purpose. This was a group of those track operators that did not want anything to do with NHRA, that did not want to be under the control or the direction or the guidance of Wally Parks, and who did want to continue all the good stuff they had going with the ATAA. So they form NADS, the National Association of Drag Strips, and become their own sanctioning body and exist for many years. It was not an association that had any big tracks, but the National Association of Drag Strips was a sanctioning body for decades in drag racing and an important sanctioning body in the middle of the country. Their fees were cheaper, they were more accessible for small racetracks, and again, their job was the same job that sanctioning bodies provide today, which is mainly group insurance. 1954 to present, the most important job in drag racing for a sanctioning body is the insurance side of the operation. If you don't have the insurance, you're nothing more than a name over the door, and you're not really helping anybody. So the National Association of Drag Strips uh, exists in various forms over the years. They use magazines like Rod Builder, which I have been uh, citing in so many of the stories about the merger and the ATAA's history, and they use that as their sound sounding board publishing every month a letter from the secretary who was N. Perry Luster, the insurance guy, and whose members would post things about races they were having and which improvements they were making at their racetracks. And they would absolutely promote the fact that they were kind of the anti-NHRA in so many ways. Elected officers, a little bit more homespun approach, did not have the NHRA's seeming desire to take over the world of drag racing. They were just happy to help their customers and constituents at these little drag strips in the middle of the country. We go back to Brett Kepner for more clarification on this point, and he gives us a nice epilogue to the players involved in the whole story. 
there there are also uh, eastern, southern, and western associations that sprung up. Uh, but Wally was able to develop his local, regional, national hierarchy of events that still serves him to this day that no matter what, usually overshadowed in sheer size and scope, the uh, schedule or the hierarchy, if there was one, of the AHRA or any of these other organizations. Now, again, Wally was creating this empire that did not rely on paying out a, a prize fund. Correct. Uh, the other associations all to a man were making money. You know, that was, or, or at least we're trying to make money. Uh, so we still have this, uh, this conflict of, of morality between the two of them. Uh, but of course, you know, that, that fell apart in the 1970s, courtesy of a lot of other people. the, World Series of Drag Racing uh, moved to Cordova Drag Strip in, in Cordova, Illinois, where it still is to this day, when that track was built in August of 1957. Uh, I, I'm sorry, the track actually opened in uh, September of 1956, but the following year, uh, the guy who created the track, Bob Bartell, who we mentioned earlier, was involved in running the races down south. He was hooked up with Lamona, so of course the World Series went to uh, Cordova. Uh, Bartell, uh, passed away just uh, a year or two ago, uh, kept single-handedly kept the uh, World Series of Drag Racing alive because it was run without a sanction for 35 years yeah. until it became, you know, more or less a booked-in show and was run under whatever sanction the track was, which was NHRA or IHRA. Uh, so that part of the story kind of ended. Uh, the ATAA ended, as we just described, the NHRA, of course, marched on. And it's important to note that by 1958, the car club culture in general was dying. Uh, the car clubs were no longer the social centers of the world that they were. They were still popular. Yeah, but they weren't uh, the be-all, end-all. They weren't the... Yeah, by, by yeah. 1962 and 1963, car clubs were pretty passe, if not uncool. Um, and therefore, the National Hobbit Association began gearing the vast majority of its efforts to drag racing or, surprisingly, car shows. Yes. Um, uh, which are pretty much free money as well. You know, you, you buy the trophies, you open the doors, it's just like a drag strip, you collect the money. Um Except it doesn't get rained out. Right, right. In, in any case, uh, the the rest of the players in this do not end up in the same boat as the National Hobbit Association, mainly because also by 1957, 8, and 9, the NHRA learned the wire service tricks. Yeah, so then they now, start they start dominating the media side of it as well, as had been done to them. Uh, AHRA did okay, but the AHRA uh, didn't have the regional events that the National Hobbit Association did, so the NHRA was on the wire much more than the AHRA was. Now, everybody needs to understand that the National Hobbit Association and the American Hobbit Association, up until 1961, only had one national drag race a year. Yeah, yeah, and, and the NHRA's World Championship Series races, which started in 1960, uh, actually were the first 
vestiges of a 20-race schedule, which is actually more than that. I think that the, the first year there was three races in each division, so it would have been a 21-race schedule. Uh, the American Outward Association was the first that moved into more than two national events a year, but by 1965 and 66, they were each at more than four. NHRA had four and uh, AHRA had six. Uh, and then you get other associations, UDRA and stuff like that, muddling it up. My point is, it was a clear-cut battle between NHRA and everybody else, and NHRA still ran gas only until 1963. Yeah, which is amazing. Yeah. Now, when they finally gave in at the 1963 Winter Nationals, it was a total surrender. Maybe. It was like, all right, we've <laughs> held out as long as we can, you know. Yeah, we're we're sorry. We're we're finally gonna actually let the girl take her top off now. You know, right? right. Uh, the only time I ever heard of his involvement in anything was the last attempt by the National Hobbit Association to do anything with anybody. You should know where that was. Um, it, it's it's actually kind of the appropriate uh, closing statement on this entire conversation. Uh, the last time the NHRA tried to do anything with anybody else. Oh, uh, we would be talking about NASCAR 1960 Winter Nationals. There you go. Uh, that was that was an entire. Uh, it was entirely the brainchild of uh, Bob Bartel because again, Bartel had been involved with NASCAR and their drag racing thing. Sure. Uh, since 1956, Osicki with the ITA became involved with it in 1958 as, as the official timer. Probably, you know, it was official something. Yeah. Uh, but then in 1960, the still a half a century later black sheep of the entire NHRA history of events, the uh, the one they still refuse to acknowledge in, in any legitimate <laughs> form, uh, the NHRA Winter Nationals in Orlando, Florida, run with NASCAR, which, you know, everybody says, oh, yeah, I heard a little bit about NASCAR running drag races in the 1960s. No, NASCAR ran drag races from 1954 until 1969. Uh, you know, Richard Petty raced a drag car one year in 1965. No, Richard Petty started drag racing in 1955, and I can prove it. Um, he uh, He's a classic example of the southern drag racing deal that was so important to Lamona. But once again, the NHRA couldn't make this thing last past one attempt uh, in their con their race in conjunction with NASCAR and who knows where that would have gone. You know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the the mailing list was the most valuable commodity of any association in that period. And Jim Lamona's mailing list was reputedly over a hundred thousand when he sold a mailing. I don't even know what to compare a mailing list with nowadays. Uh, basically be an email list. Honestly, it's a, it's like an email. Is that what it would be? Okay. Yeah, it, would, it would be. Yeah. There's value to that. in the, in the seventies. It would be your phone book. Yep. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the mailing list, not just for associations, but for tracks. You know, your local tracks mailing list was its lifeblood. Because if you weren't going to pay to put stuff on the radio, and, and even if you did, uh, you had to send you know out flyers to everybody to let them know what was going on. And and you wanted to you know look at Broadway Bob Bessler. He uh, you know he was the king of of mailing lists who had over a half a million mailing labels wow. on every flyer that he made. Uh, because and that's, that's how he operated, you know, I mean, that kept him afloat. 
uh, Lamona's mailing list was absolutely astonishing uh, for the, the, the era. That information about Lamona's mailing list came to me from Bob Bartell. Uh, and the reason I say that is because he told me, you know, he, he had over 200,000 names, he says, and that was gold back then, he would say. Uh, but when he said that, you knew that he didn't mean uh, a Chicago voting list. Right. <laughs> you know, that was 200,000 racers that he had, you know, meaningful addresses. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was just monstrous. And, you know, that 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 was part of the sale. You know, that all became Wally's power uh, in a simple transfer of funds. And that simple transfer of funds changed the course of automotive history in the United States, changed the course of drag racing, and led us to the world today where we have the NHRA as the dominant force in the world of straight-line competition here in the United States and really globally known as the leader in the drag racing universe. This has been the longest Dorkamotive podcast we've ever made. It has been the most deeply researched. It has been the most quoted. And it is certainly one that I am proud to make because nobody else has told this story in any sort of depth before. And the best part of the whole thing is we still don't have all the details all these years later. I did the best I could with all the resources I could drum up through the Library of Congress, through my own Library of Old Magazines, and of course, through the brains of Brett Kepner. I sincerely appreciate his work on this podcast. He was uh, in, in an amazing source and provided some of the most in-depth and awesome analysis that we had on the entire show. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive podcast. Please visit dorkomotive.com. Check out the website. Check out what we got going on there. And also, feel free to throw me a couple of bucks. If you love listening to this stuff, there's a button you can click there and throw me a couple of bucks for making these shows, which I do love to do and will continue to do, and I hope you continue listening. Thanks, and we'll be listening up next time for the next episode of Dorkomotive.